Section 7 of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Janet O'Reilly. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Part 3, Chapter 4 Ocoquan Workhouse. It is Bastille Day, July 14th. Inspiring scenes and tragic sacrifices for liberty come to our minds. Sixteen women march in a single file to take their own liberty, equality, fraternity to the White House gates. It is the middle of a hot afternoon. A thin line of curious spectators is seen in the park opposite of the suffrage headquarters. The police assemble from the obscure spots, some afoot, others on bicycles. They close in on the women and follow them to the gates. The proud banner is scarcely at the gates when the leader is placed under arrest. Her place is taken by another. She is taken. Another, and still another, steps into the breach and is arrested. Meanwhile the crowd grows, attracted to the spot by the presence of the police and the patrol wagon. Applause is heard. There are cries of shame for the police, who, I must say, did not always act as if they relished carrying out what they termed orders from higher up. An occasional hoot from a small boy served to make the mood of the hostile ones a bit gayer. But for the most part an intense silence fell upon the watchers as they saw not only younger women, but white-haired grandmothers hoisted before the public gaze into the crowded patrol, their heads erect, their eyes a little moist, and their frail hands holding tightly to the banner until it was wrested from them by superior brute force. This is the first time most of the women have ever seen a police station, and they are interested in their surroundings. They are not interested in helping the panting policemen count them over and identify them. Who arrested whom? That becomes the gigantic question. Will the ladies please tell which officer arrested them? They will not. They do not intend to be a party to this outrage. Finally, the officers abandon their attempt at identification. They have the names of the arrestees and will accept bail for their appearance Monday. Well, girls. I've never seen but one other court in my life, and that was the court of St. James. But I must say, they are not very much alike, was the cheery comment of Mrs. Florence Bayard Hillis as we entered the courtroom on Monday. Mrs. Hillis is the daughter of the late Thomas Bayard, formerly America's ambassador to Great Britain and Secretary of State in President Cleveland's cabinet. The stuffy courtroom is packed to overflowing. The fat one-eyed bailiff is perspiring to no purpose. He cannot make the throng sit down, and in fact, everyone who has anything to do with the pickets perspires to no purpose. Judge Maloney takes his seat, looking at once grotesque and menacing on his red throne. Silence in the courtroom from the sinister-eyed bailiff, and a silence follows so heavy that it can be heard. Saturday nights, both black and white, are tried first. The suffrage prisoners strain their ears to hear the pitiful pleas of these unfortunates, most of whom come to the bar without counsel or friend. Scraps of evidence are heard. Judge, you say you were not quarreling, Lottie. Lottie, I sure do, Yohanna. We was just singing. We was sure enough, sir. Judge, singing, Lottie? Why, your neighbors here testify to the fact that you were making a great deal of noise so much that they could not sleep. Lottie, I tells you, Honor, we was just singing, like we always do. Judge, what were you singing? Lottie, 
Why him, saw? The judge smiles cynically. A neatly attired white man with a wizened face again takes the stand against Lottie. Hymns or no hymns, he could not sleep. The judge pronounces a sentence of six months in the workhouse for Lottie. And so it goes on. The suffrage prisoners are the main business of the morning. Sixteen women come inside the railing which separates tried from untried and take their seats. Do the ladies wish the government to provide them with counsel? They do not. We shall speak in our own behalf. We feel that we can best represent ourselves, we announce. Miss Anne Martin and I act as attorneys for the group. The same panting policemen who could not identify the people they had arrested give their stereotyped, false, and illiterate testimony. The judge helps them over the hard places, and so does the government's attorney. They stumble to an embarrassed finish and retire. An aged government clerk, grown infirm in the service, takes the stand, and the government attorney proves through him that there is a White House, that it has a sidewalk in front of it, and a pavement, and a hundred other overwhelming facts. The pathetic clerk shakes his dusty frame and slinks off the stand. The prosecuting attorney now elaborately proves that we walked, we carried banners, that we were arrested by the aforesaid officers while attempting to hold our banners at the White House gates. Each woman speaks briefly in her own defense. She denounces the government's policy with hot defiance. The blame is placed squarely at the door of the administration and in unmistakable terms. Miss Anne Martin opens for the defense. This is what we are doing with our banners before the White House, petitioning the most powerful representative of the government, the President of the United States, for a redress of grievances. We are asking him to use his great power to secure the passage of the National Suffrage Amendment. As long as the government and the representatives of the government prefer to send women to jail on petty and technical charges, we will go to jail. Persecution has always advanced the cause of justice. The right of American women to work for democracy must be maintained. We would hinder, not help, the whole cause of freedom for women if we weakly submitted to persecution now. Our work for the passage of the amendment must go on. It will go on. Mrs. John Rogers, Jr., descendant of Roger Sherman, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, speaks. We are not guilty of any offense, not even of infringing a police regulation. We know full well that we stand here because the President of the United States refuses to give liberty to American women. We believe, Your Honor, that the wrong persons are before the bar in this courtroom. I object, Your Honor, to this woman making such a statement here in court, says the District Attorney. We believe the President is the guilty one and that we are innocent. Your Honor, I object, shouts the government's attorney. The prisoner continues calmly. There are votes enough and there is time enough to pass the National Suffrage Amendment through Congress at this session. More than 200 votes in the House and more than 50 in the Senate are pledged to this amendment. The President puts his power behind all measures in which he takes a genuine interest. If he will say one frank word advocating this measure, it will pass as a piece of war emergency legislation. Mrs. Florence Bayard Hillis speaks in her own defense. For generations, the men of my family have given their services to their country. For myself, my training from childhood has been with a father who believed in democracy and who belonged to the Democratic Party. 
by inheritance and connection i am a democrat and to a democratic president i went with my appeal what a spectacle it must be to the thinking people of this country to see us urged to go to war for democracy in a foreign land and to see women thrown into prison who plead for that same cause at home i stand here to affirm my innocence of the charge against me this court has not proven that i obstructed traffic my presence at the white house gate was under the constitutional right of petitioning the government for freedom or for any other cause during the months of january february march april and may picketing was legal in june it suddenly became illegal my services as an american woman are being conscripted by order of the president of the united states to help win the world war for democracy for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government i shall continue to plead for the political liberty of american women and especially do i plead to the president since he is the only person who can end the struggles of american women to take their proper places in a true democracy there is continuous objection from the prosecutor eager advice from the judge you had better keep to the charge of obstructing traffic but round on round of applause comes from the intent audience whenever a defiant note is struck by the prisoners and in spite of the sharp rapping of the gavel confusion reigns and how utterly puny the charge is if it were true that the prisoners actually obstructed the traffic how grotesque that would be the importance of their demand the purity of their reasoning the nobility and gentle quality of the prisoners at the bar all conspire to make the charge against them and the attorney who makes it and the judge who hears it petty and ridiculous but justice must proceed mrs gilson gardner of washington d c a member of the executive committee of the national woman's party and the wife of gilson gardner a well-known liberal and journalist speaks it is impossible for me to believe that we were arrested because we were obstructing traffic or blocking the public highway we have been carrying on activities of a distinctly political nature and these political activities have seemingly disturbed certain powerful influences arrests followed i submit that these arrests are purely political and that the charge of an unlawful assemblage and of obstructing traffic is a political subterfuge even should i be sent to jail which i could not your honor anticipate i would be in jail not because i obstructed traffic but because i have offended politically because i have demanded of this government freedom for women it was my task to sum up for the defense the judge sat bored through my statement we know and i believe the court knows also i said that president wilson and his administration are responsible for our being here today it is a fact that they gave the orders which caused our arrest and appearance before this bar we know and you know that the district commissioners are appointed by the president that the present commissioners were appointed by president wilson we know that you your honor were appointed to the bench by president wilson and that the district attorney who prosecutes us was appointed by the president these various officers would not dare bring us here under false charges without the policy having them decided upon by the responsible leaders what is our real crime what have these distinguished and liberty-loving women done to bring them before this court of justice why your honor their crime is that they peacefully petitioned the president of the united states for liberty 
what must be the shame of our nation before the world when it becomes known that here we throw women into jail who love liberty and attempt to peacefully petition the president for it these women are nearly all descended from revolutionary ancestors or from some of the greatest libertarian statesmen this country has produced what would these men say now if they could see that passion for liberty which was in their own hearts rewarded in the twentieth century with foul and filthy imprisonment we say to you this outrageous policy of stupid and brutal punishment will not dampen the ardor of the women where sixteen of us face your judgment today there will be sixty tomorrow so great will be the indignation of our colleagues in this fight the trial came to an end after a tense two days the packed courtroom fat in terrible silence waiting for the judge's answer there were distinguished men present at the trial men who also fight for their ideals there was frederick c howe then commissioner of immigration of the port of new york frank p walsh international labor leader dudley fred malone then collector of the port of new york amos pinchot liberal leader john a hopkins then liberal progressive leader in new jersey who had turned his organization to the support of the president and become a member of the president's campaign committee now chairman of the committee of forty-eight and whose beautiful wife was among the prisoners allen mccurdy secretary of the committee of forty-eight and many others one and all came forward to protest to us during the adjournment this is monstrous never have i seen evidence so disregarded this is a tragic farce and he will never dare sentence you it was reported to us that the judge used the interim to telephone to the district building where the district commissioners sit he returned to pronounce sixty days in the workhouse in default of a twenty-five dollar fine the shock was swift and certain to all the spectators we would not of course pay the unjust fine imposed for we were not guilty of any offence the judge attempted persuasion you had better decide to pay your fines he ventured and you will not find jail a pleasant place to be it was clear that neither he nor his conferee had imagined women would accept with equanimity such a drastic sentence it was now their time to be shocked here were ladies that was perfectly clear ladies of unusual distinction surely they would not face the humiliation of a workhouse sentence which involved not only imprisonment but penal servitude the administration was wrong again we protest against this unjust sentence and conviction we said but we prefer the workhouse to the payment of a fine imposed for an offense of which we are not guilty we filed into the pen to join the other prisoners and wait for the black maria to carry us to prison we are all taken to the district jail where we are put through the regular catechism were you ever in prison before age birthplace father mother religion and what not we were then locked up two to a cell what will happen next the sleek jailer whose attempt to be cordial provokes a certain distrust comes to our quarter to turn us over to our next keeper the warden of okakwan we learn that the workhouse is not situated in the district of columbia but in virginia other locked wagons with tiny windows up near the driver now take us side by side with drunks and disorderlies prostitutes and thieves to the pennsylvania station here we embark for the unknown terrors of the workhouse filing through crowds at the station driven on by our keeper who resembles simon legree with his long stick and his pushing and shoving to hurry us along 
The crowd is quick to realize that we are prisoners because of our associates. Friends try to bid us a last farewell and slip us a sweet or fruit as we are rushed through the iron station gates to the train. Warden Whitaker is our keeper, thin and old, with a cruel mouth, brutal eyes, and a sinister birthmark on his temple. He guards very anxiously his dangerous criminals, lest they try to leap out of the train to freedom. We chat a little and attempt to relax from the strain that we have endured since Saturday. It is now late in the afternoon of Tuesday. The dusk is gathering. It is almost totally dark when we alight at a tiny station in what seems to us a wilderness. It is a deserted country. Even the gayest member of the party, I am sure, was struck with a little terror here. More locked wagons, blacker than the dusk, awaited us. The prison van jolted and bumped along the rocky and hilly road. A cluster of lights twinkled beyond the last hill, and we knew that we were coming to our temporary summer residence. I can still see the long, thin line of black poplars against the smoldering afterglow. I did not know then what tragic things they concealed. We entered a well-lighted office. A few guards of ugly demeanor stood about. Warden Whitaker consulted with the hard-faced matron, Mrs. Herndon, who began the prison routine. Names were called, and each prisoner stepped to the desk to get her number, to give up all jewelry, money, handbags, letters, eyeglasses, traveling bags containing toilet necessities, in fact everything except the clothes on her body. From there we were herded into the long bare dining room, where we sat dumbly down to a bowl of dirty sour soup. I say dumbly, for now began the rule of silence. Prisoners are punished for speaking to one another at table. They cannot even whisper, much less smile or laugh. They must be conscious always of their guilt. Every possible thing is done to make the inmates feel that they are and must continue to be antisocial creatures. We taste our soup and crust of bread. We try so hard to eat it, for we are tired and hungry. But no one of us is able to get it down. We leave the table hungry and slightly nauseated. Another long march in silence through various channels into a large dormitory and through a double line of cots. Then we stand, weary to the point of fainting, waiting the next ordeal. This seemed to be the juncture at which we lost all that is left us of contact with the outside world, our clothes. An assistant matron, attended by negress prisoners, relieves us of our clothes. Each prisoner is obliged to strip naked without even the protection of a sheet and proceed across what seems endless space to a shower bath. A large tin bucket stands on the floor, and in this is a minute piece of dirty soap which is offered to us and rejected. We dare not risk the soap used by so many prisoners. Naked, we return from the bath to receive our allotment of coarse, hideous prison clothes, the outer garments of which consist of a bulky Mother Hubbard wrapper of bluish-gray ticking and a heavy apron of the same dismal stuff. It takes a dominant personality indeed to survive these clothes. The thick, unbleached muslin undergarments are of designs never to be forgotten, and the thick stockings and forlorn shoes. What torture to put on shoes that are alike for each foot and made to fit just anybody who may happen along. Why are we being ordered to dress? It is long past the bedtime hour. Our suspense is brief. All dressed in cloth of guilt, we are led into what we later learn is the recreation room. Lined up against the wall, we might any other time have bantered about the possibility of being shot, but we are in no mood to jest. The door finally opens and in strides Warden Whitaker with a stranger beside him. 
He reviews his latest criminal recruits, engaging the stranger, meanwhile, in whispered conversation. There are short, uncertain laughs. There are nods of the head and more whispers. Well, ladies, I hope you are all comfortable. Now make yourselves at home. I think you will find it healthy here. You'll weigh more when you go out than when you came in. You will be allowed to write one letter a month to your family. Of course we open and read all letters coming in and going out. Tomorrow you will be assigned your work. I hope you will sleep well. Good night. We did not answer. We just looked at each other. News leaked through in the morning that the stranger had been a newspaper reporter. The papers next morning were full of the comfort and luxury of our surroundings. The delicious food sounded most reassuring to the nation. In fact, no word of the truth was allowed to appear. The correspondent could not know that he went back to our cots to try to sleep side by side with negro prostitutes. Not that we shrank from these women on account of their color, but how terrible to know that. The institution had gone out of its way to bring these prisoners from their own wing to the white wing in an attempt to humiliate us. There was plenty of room in the negro wing, but prison must be made so unbearable that no more women could face it. That was the policy attempted here. We tried very hard to sleep and forget our hunger and weariness. But all the night through our dusky comrades padded by to the lavatory, and in the streak of light which shot across the center of the room, startled heads could be seen bobbing up in the direction of a demented woman in the end caught. Her weird mutterings made us fearful. There was no sleep in this strange place. Our thoughts turned to the outside world. Will the women care? Will enough women believe that through such humiliation all may win freedom? Will they believe that through our imprisonment their slavery will be lifted the sooner? Less philosophically, will the government be moved by public protest? Will such protest come? The next morning brought us a visitor from the suffrage headquarters. The institution hoped that the visitor would use her persuasion to make us pay our fines and leave, and so she was admitted. We learned the cheery news that immediately after sentence had been pronounced by the court, Dudley Field Malone had gone direct to the woodhouse to protest to the president. His protest was delivered with heat. The president said that he was shocked at the sixty-day sentences, and that he did not know how it had been done, and made other evasions. Mr. Malone's report of his interview with the president is given in a full subsequent chapter. Following Mr. Malone, Mr. J. A. H. Hopkins went to the White House. How would you like to have your wife sleeping in a dirty workhouse next to the prostitutes, was his direct talk to the president. Again, the president was shocked. No wonder. Mr. and Mrs. Hopkins had been the president's dinner guests not very long before, celebrating his return to power. They had supported him politically and financially in New Jersey. Now Mrs. Hopkins had been arrested at his gate and thrown into the prison. In reporting the interview, Mr. Hopkins said, The president asked me four suggestions as to what might be done, and I replied that in view of the seriousness of the present situation, the only solution lay in immediate passage of the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. Gilson Gardner also went to the White House to leave his hot protest, and there were others. Telegrams poured in from all over the country. The press printed headlines which could not but arouse the sympathy of thousands. Even people who did not approve of picketing the White House said, after all, what these women have done is certainly not bad enough to merit such drastic punishment, and women protested. 
from coast to coast there poured in at our headquarters copies of telegrams sent to administration leaders of course not all women by any means had approved this method for agitation but the government's action had done more than we had been able to do for them it had made them feel sex-conscious women were being unjustly treated regardless of their feelings about this particular procedure they stood up and objected for the first time i believe our form of agitation began to seem a little more respectable than the administration's handling of it but the administration did not know this fact yet everybody in line for the workroom we were thankful to leave our inedible breakfast we were unable to drink the greasy black coffee the pain in the tops of our heads was acute what will you all down here for asked a young negress barely out of her teens as she casually fingered her sewing material why i held a purple white and gold banner at the gates of the white house you don't say what the others do same thing we all held banners at the white house gates asking president wilson to give us the vote and you all got sixty days for that yes you see the president thought it would be a good idea to send us to the workhouse for asking for the vote you know women want to vote and have wanted to for a long time in our country oh yes i know i seen your parades and meetings and everything i know where y'all live right near the white house you're all right i hopes you get it for women certainly do need protestation against men like judge maloney he has his all the time picked up on and send down here they send you down here once and then you come out without a cent and try to look for a job and before you can find one a cop walks up and asks you what ye live and if you don't have a place yet because ye ain't got a cent to rent one with he says come with me i'll find you a home and hustles you off to the police station and down he again and you're called a vagrant what chance has we niggers got i ask you i hopes you all gets a vote and fixes up something for women you see that young girl over there said another prisoner who in spite of an unfortunate life had kept a remnant of her early beauty i nodded well judge maloney gave her thirty days for her first offence and when he sentenced her she cried out desperately don't send me down there judge if you do i'll kill myself what do you think he said to that i'll give you six months in which to change your mind i reflected the judge that broke this pale-faced silent girl was the appointee of the president it was the task of such a man to sentence american women to the workhouse for demanding liberty conversing with the regulars was forbidden by the wardress but we managed from time to time to talk to our fellow prisoners with stealthiness we knew something was going to happen said one negro girl because monday the clothes we had on were took off us and we were give these old patched ones we was told they wanted to take stock but we heard they was being washed for y'all suffragettes the unpleasantness at wearing the formerless garments of these unfortunate made us all wince but the government's calculation aroused our hot indignation we were not convicted until tuesday and our prison garments were ready monday you must not speak against the president said the servile wardress when she discovered we were telling our story to the inmates you know you will be thrashed if you say anything more about the president and don't forget you're on government property and may be arrested for treason if it happens again we doubted the seriousness of this threat of thrashing until one of the girls confided to us that such outrages happened often we afterward obtained proof of these brutalities see affidavit of mrs bovee page one forty four 
Old Whitaker beat up that girl over there just last week and put her in a booby house on bread and water for five days. What did she do? I asked. Oh, she and another girl got to scrapping in the blackberry patch and she didn't pick enough berries. I'll put up your work, girls, and get in line. This from the wardress who sped up the work in the sewing room. It was lunch time, and though we were all hungry, we dreaded going to the silence and the food in that gray dining room with the vile odors. We were counted again as we filed out, carrying our heavy chairs with us, as is the workhouse custom. Do they do this all the time? I asked. It seemed as though needless energy was being spent counting and recounting our little group. Wouldn't do anybody any good to try to get away from here, said one of the white girls. Too many bloodhounds. Bloodhounds, I asked in amazement. For after all, these women were not criminals, but merely misdemeanants. Oh, yes, just a little while ago, three men tried to get away, and they turned bloodhounds on after them, and shot them dead. They weren't bad men, either. When our untasted supper was over that night, we were ordered into the square, bare-walled recreation room, where we and other prisoners sat, and sat, and sat, our chairs against the walls, a dreary sight indeed, waiting for the forty-five minutes before bedtime to pass. The sight of two negro girl prisoners combing out each other's lice and dressing their kinky hair in such a way as to discourage permanently a return of the vermin did not produce in us exactly a feeling of recreation. But we tried singing. The negroes joined in, too, and soon outsang us with their plaintive melodies and hymns. Then back to our cells and another attempt to sleep. A new ordeal the next morning. Another of the numberless pedigrees is to be taken. One by one we were called to the warden's office. Were your father or mother ever insane? Are you a confirmed drunkard, chronic, or moderate drinker? Do you smoke or chew or use tobacco in any form? Married or single? Single. How many children? None. What religion do you profess? Christian. What religion do you profess? In a higher-pitched voice. I did not clearly comprehend. Do you mean am I a Catholic or a Protestant? I am a Christian. But it was of no avail. She wrote down, None. I protested. That is not accurate. I insist that I am a Christian, or at least I try to be one. You must learn to be polite, she retorted almost fiercely, and I returned to the sewing room. For the hundredth time we asked to be given our toothbrushes, combs, handkerchiefs, and our own soap. The third day of imprisonment without any of these essentials found us depressed and worried over our unsanitary condition. We pled also for toilet paper. It was senseless to deny these necessities. It is enough to imprison people. Why seek to degrade them utterly? The third afternoon we were mysteriously summoned into the presence of Superintendent Whitaker. He seemed warm and cordial. We were ordered, drawn up in a semicircle. Ladies, there is a rumor that you may be pardoned, he began. By whom, asked one. For what, asked another. We're innocent women. There is nothing to pardon us for. I have come to ask you what you would do if the President pardoned you. We would refuse to accept it, came the ready response from several. I shall leave you for a while to consider this, mind. I have not yet received information of a pardon, but I have been asked to ascertain your attitude. Our consultation was brief. We were of one mind. We were unanimous in wishing to reject a pardon for a crime which we had never committed. We said so with some spirit when Mr. Whitaker returned for our decision. You have no choice. You are obliged to accept a pardon. That settled it, and we waited. 
that this protest on the outside had been strong enough to precipitate action from the government was the subject of our conversation evidently it had not been strong enough to force action on the suffrage amendment but it was forcing action and that was important mr whitaker returned triumphant ladies you are pardoned by the president you are free to go as soon as you have taken off your prison clothes and put on your own it was sad to leave the other prisoners behind especially pathetic were the girls who helped us with our clothes they whispered such eager appeals in our ears telling us of their drastic sentences for trifling offences and of the cruel punishments it was hard to resist digressing into some effort at prison reform that way lay our instincts our reason told us that we must first change the status of women as we were leaving the workhouse to return to washington we had an unexpected revelation of the attitude of officialdom toward our campaign addressing miss lucy burns who had arrived to assist us in getting on our way superintendent whittaker in an almost unbelievable rage said now that you women are going away i have something to say and i want to say it to you the next lot of women who come here won't be treated with the same consideration that these women were i will show later on how he made good this terrible threat receiving a presidential pardon through the attorney general had its amusing aspect my comrades shared this amusement when i told them the following incident on the day after our arrest i was having tea at the chevy chase country club in washington quite casually a gentleman introduced me to mr gregory the attorney general i see you were mixed up with the suffragettes yesterday was the attorney general's first remark to the gentleman and before the latter could explain that he had settled accounts quietly but efficiently with a hoodlum who was attempting to trip the women up on their march the chief law officer of the united states contributed this important suggestion you know what i'd do if i was those policemen i'd just take a hose out with me and when the women came out with their banners why well, i'd just squirt the hose on em but mr gregory yes sir if you can just make what a woman does look ridiculous you can sure kill it but mr attorney general what right would the police have to assault these or any other women the gentleman finally managed to interpolate <laughs> denoting great surprise came from the attorney general as he looked to me for reassurance his expectant look vanished when i said mr gregory did it ever occur to you that it might make the government look ridiculous instead of the women you can imagine how the easy manner of one who is sure of his audience melted from his face this is one of the women arrested yesterday continued the gentleman while the attorney-general smothered a well i'll be i'm out on bail i said tomorrow we go to jail it is all prearranged you understand the trial is merely a matter of form the highest law officer of the land fled gurgling the day following our release mrs j h hopkins carried a picket banner to the gates of the white house to test the validity of the pardon her banner read we do not ask for pardon for ourselves but justice for all american women a curious crowd as large as had collected on those days when the police arrested women for obstructing traffic stood watching the lone picket the president passed through the gates and saluted the police did not interfere daily picketing was resumed and no arrests followed for the moment it was now august three months since the senate suffrage committee authorized its chairman mr jones to report the measure to the senate for action mr jones said however that he was too busy to make a report that he wanted to make a particularly brilliant one one that would be a contribution to the cause 
that he did not approve of picketing, but that he would report the measure in a reasonable time. So much for the situation in the Senate. From the House we gathered some interesting evidence. We reminded Mr. Webb, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, that out of a total membership of twenty-one men on his committee, twelve were Democrats, two-thirds of whom were opposed to the measure. We reminded him that the Republicans on the committee were for action. Mr. Webb wrote in answer. The Democratic caucus passed a resolution that only war emergency measures would be considered during this extra session, and that the President might designate from time to time special legislation which he regarded as war legislation, and such would be acted on by the House. The President, not having designated woman's suffrage and national prohibition so far as war measures, the Judiciary Committee up to this time has not felt warranted under the caucus rule in reporting either of these measures. If the President should request either or both of them as war measures, then I think the committee would attempt to take some action on them promptly. So you see, after all, it is important to your cause to make the President see that women's suffrage comes within the rules laid down. Here was a frank admission of the assumption upon which women had gone to jail that the President was responsible for action on the amendment. Now that we were again allowed to picket the White House, the Republicans seized the opportunity legitimately to embarrass their opponents by precipitating a bitter debate. Senator Cummins of Iowa, a Republican member of the Suffrage Committee, moved, as had Mr. Mann in the House at an earlier date, to discharge the Suffrage Committee for failing to make the report authorized by the entire committee. Mr. Cummins said, among other things, I look upon the resolution as definitely and certainly a war measure. There is nothing that this country could do which would strengthen it more than to give the disfranchised women the opportunity to vote. Last week I went to the chairman of the committee and told him that we had finished the hearings, reached a conclusion, and that it was our bounden duty to make the report to the Senate. I asked him if he would not call a meeting of the committee. He said that it would be impossible, that he had some other engagements which would prevent a meeting of the committee. Senator Cummins explained that he finally got the promise of the chairman that a meeting of the committee would be called on a given date. When it was not called, he made his motion. Chairman Jones made some feeble remarks and some evasive excuses which meant nothing, and which only further aroused Republican friends of the measure on the committee. Senator Grona of North Dakota, Republican, interrupted him with the direct question. I asked the chairman of this committee why this joint resolution has not been reported. The senator, who is chairman of the committee, I suppose, knows as well as I do that the people of the entire country are anxious to have this joint resolution submitted and to be given an opportunity to vote upon it. Senator Johnson of California, Republican, proposed that Chairman Jones consent to call the committee together to consider reporting out the bill, which Senator Jones flatly refused to do. Senator Jones of Washington, another Republican member of the committee, added, I agree with the Senator from Iowa that this is a war measure and ought to be considered as such at this time. I do not see how we can very consistently talk democracy while disfranchising the better half of our citizenship. I may not approve of the action of the women picketing the White House, but neither do I approve of what I consider the lawless action toward these women in connection with the picketing. I do not want to think the chairman does not desire to call the committee together because of some influence outside of Congress, as some have suggested. At this point, Senator Hollis of New Hampshire, Democrat, arose to say, There is a small but very active group of women suffragists who have acted in such a way that some who are ardently in favor of women suffrage believe that their action should not be encouraged by making a favorable report at this time. Senator Johnson protested at this point, but Senator Hollis continued, 
to discharge the committee would focus the attention of the country upon the action and would give undue weight to what has been done by the active group of women suffragists i think that any student of psychology will acknowledge that our picketing had stimulated action in congress and that what was now needed was some still more provocative action from us End of section seven.